Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode we're covering the Come Follow Me lesson for March 9th through 15th, 2020. Uh, This is covering Jacob chapters 1 through 4. And now let me introduce the star of the show, the scriptures. Yay, scriptures. Thank you for coming. so good to see you. Nice to have you here. And now to introduce a new segment, we would like to invite the Scripturematic 6000 to tell us how long it would take to read this week's reading assignment. 25 minutes and 27 seconds. So I'm sure that you're going to spend it probably twice that amount of time listening to this episode. Maybe you should take a little bit of time and and read the chapters. It's Yay! All right. So, Jacob, we are in the book of Jacob now. This is Jacob, the son of Lehi. And uh, so what, what what have we got to start with? Well, I like that in verse 1, he points out who gave him the commandment to continue writing. Nephi is the one that started this. He'll tell us later it's Nephi who had made these plates. But it's—and Nephi's descendants are the ones who are going to take on the role of king, uh, Jacob is, and his descendants will be the, uh, uh, it seems, a priestly line, and it will be up to them to keep the record on the small plates, uh, which is the more uh, religious record. So in verse 1, Nephi gave me, Jacob, a commandment concerning the small plates and those things that would be engraved on them. And he gives us in these first eight verses a I don't know if it's too much to call it a mission statement, uh, but he says that uh, in verse 7, he's trying to persuade his people to come unto Christ, partake of the goodness of God, and enter into his rest, which means to be in his glory. And in verse 8, the same thing, to persuade them not to rebel against God or provoke him to anger, and to that all men would believe in in Christ. So that's his goal going forward with the plates and the things that he writes. We should see this message here to persuade us for one against the other. Now, starting in verse 9, Nephi began to be old and saw that he must soon die. So he appointed a man to be a king and a ruler. Now, we've got a couple of historical things in these following verses, which are helpful going forward. Uh, We begin now the reign of the kings. Nephi never considered himself a king. He worked to serve the people. But going forward, the people will anoint a man to be a king and a ruler. And the people, in verse 10, having loved Nephi exceedingly, he having been a great protector for them, again, not reference to king, uh, having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense, having labored in all his days for for their welfare, Wherefore, the people were desirous to retain in remembrance his name. And whoso should reign in his stead, they were called by the people, 2 Nephi, 3 Nephi, and so forth, according to the reigns of the kings. So this is a little bit parallel to something like, say, a Caesar, uh, where it doesn't necessarily matter the name. This is now, the name has become a title. So you could have Frank the Nephite, and but he would be called 
uh, a Nephi. And this seems to continue through the reign of the kings, which we know very little about until Mosiah takes the people north in the book of Omni. But we're assuming that that's, that that's it. It also ties into why we get these, we don't really call them Nephites, necessarily meaning a uh, from the lineage of Nephi, but instead, often the phrase is the people of Nephi. The idea is that Nephi being that title, these are the people who are under the leadership of a Nephi, the people of Nephi. And Nephite even going forward is not going to be used as a lineage either. Later on in the Book of Mormon, when someone really wants to demonstrate, uh, they will say they were a direct descendant of Nephi or Laman or or whatever. But Jacob goes on to, to describe that. And uh, now the people which were not Lamanites were Nephites. So that, that covers it. It's not a lineage thing anymore. They were called, we had tribal affiliations. We had Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. But he's going to distinguish everybody. And this is a dynamic that's used going forward, that the Lamanites are the ones that seek to destroy the people of Nephi. And those that are friendly to Nephi, he'll call Nephites. It doesn't matter what tribe they are. That's how those terms will be used going forward. Now, something that's interesting to note is the complete lack of Samites, which is something that has been discussed uh, by many people for a long time. There are plenty of ideas. The notion, uh, there's a no why from Book of Mormon Central on the topic. And in it, uh, by the way, I painted all those pictures just in case. I, and I, <laughs> can I just point this out? On this image, um, these images, this is, okay, this is the artist in me saying, look, I just have to, this is a disclaimer. Uh, those images were painted to be a part of the card game Book of Mormon Battles. They were meant to be small, and that's all they were meant to be used for. And now I find them popping up all sorts of places, um, and I look at them and I think, oh, okay, but I had to paint them very fast. And so I'm grateful that they're finding use, but... Um, uh, <laughs> they were originally just intended for one project, and, and that was it. Okay, <laughs> back, to, back to important topics. Okay, so this idea of Samites, one of the things that plenty of articles will say that the Know Why talks about is that uh, this has something to do with numbers. Uh, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and it's really important that it stays 12. So when a double portion came to Joseph's descendants, Ephraim and Manasseh, then we kind of excluded the, the, the Levites. So we could keep it at 12, that that was an important number uh, to the Israelites. And that seven here, because there's seven tribes, uh, that that was important, seven tribes of Lehi, because seven is a special number. Uh, that may be true. But it doesn't, it doesn't work for me because Zoram's included. And it seems like if you're going to kick somebody out, you would kind of keep the family members together, I would think. So why no Samite? Some have speculated he didn't have a family or they didn't live very long. Let me just tell you what we know. And um, I, I'll share with you a, a speculative thought on, on my part. Uh, but it is interesting to, to explore Right away, in in First Nephi, 
uh, 8 in, in Lehi's vision of the tree. Lehi says that he has reason to believe that many of, of the seed of Nephi and Sam will be saved. So we already have a sense here of uh, a destiny for the descendants of Nephi and Sam. And then he shares concern about Laman and Lemuel. Um, second Nephi chapter one, Sam's included with those of his sons who are told that if they follow Nephi, they will be blessed. Now, we already know that Sam believed on the words of Nephi, and that was good enough for him in, in, in first Nephi 2.17. Uh, what's really bizarre to me is how he keeps getting put at the end of things. He's older than Nephi, and the reason that a lot of people make that mistake is that he's not really included in a lot of what's being talked about. He doesn't really say anything. In Second Nephi, in Second Nephi five six, Zoram and his family are listed on those that are leaving. Uh, you know, they're leaving with Nephi. Uh, he gives this list and he talks about Zoram and his family and then talks about his older brother and his family. Then Sam and his family. It's the same thing in uh, 2 Nephi 4. The Lehi blesses Sam after Zoram. Zoram gets blessed before. As a matter of fact, Sam's the very last person that gets blessed. And then he dies. He, he says that Nephi... And thy seed shall be numbered with his seed, Nephi's seed. And thou shalt be even like unto thy brother, and thy seed like unto his seed. And thou uh, shalt be blessed in, in all thy days. Okay, but why? Why doesn't he get, being included with Nephi? Zoram gets a blessing that because of his friendship, he'll be included with the blessings of Nephi. But he still has... A, a tribal lineage. And then in Alma 3.6, it says, it gives this list of righteous people, Nephi, Jacob, Joseph, and Sam, who were just and holy men. Why is Sam at the end? Uh, He's the oldest of the group. He is. So, so here's my thought. First of all, think of it what you will. I think it's fascinating. What I, some people are really bothered by this notion, but just consider is it possible that Sam is in a different position of accountability than his brothers? Is it possible that he has a, in, in the world today, we're so familiar with things like autism and other mental handicaps and, and, or, or any handicap. Is it possible that, that Sam is in this category? Some people don't like to think about it, but Personally, I would be delighted to know that there was somebody in the scriptures that many people today could really relate to that experience. So who knows? I'm just saying there's something going on with Sam. It's fascinating that he's put in such a different place than anybody else. And even Zoram, who's an outsider, I think there must be a reason for it. But he's certainly a hero. And I love it. But that may be, I don't know about this whole 7 and 12 thing. Uh, there's resources on the Know Why page. There's papers you can read. I don't find it as compelling as as my thoughts on it. But th there you go, for, for what it's worth. Few people find other people's views more compelling than their own. <laughs> yeah. But. <laughs> hey, so one other thing about this, when you're talking with this, with your family about it, you know, there are these tribal uh, differentiations. What kind of things separate us today? Jacob is trying to group people together by important characteristics. 
those who seek to destroy the people of Nephi are, are labeled one way collectively, and those that are friendly to Nephi and his beliefs and standards and so forth are another way. And it doesn't seem to matter maybe in today's terms, what church they go to, what political affiliation they are, what uh, cultural backgrounds they come from. Uh, essentially, Jacob is labeling them as those that are friendly to God and those that are not. And so, anyways, it might be interesting to talk about what kinds of things we make, you know, tribal today. Hmm. And the last thing to mention um, for me is... This idea in, in verse 15, we have the introduction of the reasons that Jacob is about to talk to everybody. In 17, he says, I, Jacob, give unto them these words. What words? Well, he's about to give them to us uh, in the next few chapters. So, uh, and one of the reasons in 15 is this notion of the people in the second, this is the second king already, the people are growing hard in their hearts, indulging themselves somewhat in wicked practices like David of old, desiring wives and concubines. Uh, Jay? Yes? What's a concubine? Well, I'm going to tell you. Most all Bible dictionaries have a definition for concubines. I don't know why ours does not. But our manuals do say that a concubine refers to a woman in the Old Testament times who was legally married to a man but had a lower social status than a wife. So it's a wife with a lower social status. She still has all of the, uh, is entitled to all of the uh, providing and, and protection of her husband. Absolutely. Yep. And her children, well, in the, in the case of like, say, Jacob's wives and concubines, their children had full status, uh, which makes it a real blessing for people of mm -hmm. a lower social status to be able to uh, have their children be, be raised up in the, in the social caste. So one of the reasons that Jacob is going to teach us is that he has been consecrated. He and his brother were consecrated priests and teachers. And that's going to inform why he's teaching the people the way he's going to be teaching them in coming chapters. They use a real—Jacob uses a real powerful phrase at the end of chapter 1 in which he is is saying that he's uh, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we don't teach them. Uh, there was a quote from Hubie Brown that I wanted to uh, uh, include about this. This is from uh, 19, uh, October 1962 General Conference. Uh, he says, quote, President John Taylor said on one occasion, speaking to the brethren of the priesthood, if you do not magnify your callings, God will hold you responsible for those you might have saved had you done your duty. This is a challenging statement. If I, by reason of sins of commission or omission, lose what I might have had in the hereafter, I myself must suffer and doubtless my loved ones with me. But if I fail in my assignment as a bishop, a stake president, a mission president, or one of the general authorities of the church, if any of us fail to teach, lead, direct, and help to save those under our direction and within our jurisdiction, then the Lord will hold us responsible if they are lost as the result of our failure. End quote. 
You know, we lose sight of that a lot of times with callings in the church. We uh, there there are times that we tend to glamorize a, a particular calling, uh, one you know, like a bishop or a, or a stake president. <laughs> uh, you know that that there's there's respect certainly that comes uh, along with that calling, uh, but we often lose sight of the fact that there is also a tremendous responsibility that is uh, given with that calling. And even with something as basic as like uh, the calling of a, of a father or a mother, uh, mm. there's a great deal of responsibility there. And so let's help where we can. Absolutely. To lighten and the, the whole load. point is to sustain, to sustain, to support. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of a, a, a quote, and I I'm sorry, I couldn't find this, so there's not going to be a source on it, so take it with a grain of salt. I believe it's attributed to uh, Elder Paul H. Dunn. Uh, but he was speaking to a, a group of young men, uh, was to have said, for those of you who are aspiring to positions in the church, I hope you get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true concept for sure. It really is. All right, chapter two then. Yeah. So in verse 8, well, 8 through 10, Jacob spends a lot of time essentially apologizing for what he's about to talk about. Uh, It's clear that he really doesn't want to talk about this. And uh, it it strikes me as interesting that we have this window into Jacob, uh, you know, that he wants to be able to, you know, talk about confirming doctrine and to build people up. But he realizes that he has been commanded to not tear people down, but to uh, open some wounds, as it were, to, to get people inspired to repent. And that's something that is characteristic of really all of God's servants at one point or another. Uh, there's a, a really great quote that I pulled out of the Institute Manual uh, from uh, Elder Oaks, then Elder Oaks, Dallin H. Oaks. Uh, this was at, given at a CES fireside in May 1st, 2005, uh, called uh, The Dedication of a Lifetime. He says, quote, Last week, I was talking with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve about comments we had received on our April conference talks. My friend said, someone told him, I surely enjoyed your talk. We agreed that this is not the kind of comment we like to receive. As my friend said, I didn't give that talk to be enjoyed. What does he think I am, some kind of entertainer? Another member of our Quorum joined the conversation by saying, that reminds me of the story of a good minister. When a parishioner said, I surely enjoyed your sermon today, the minister replied, in that case, you didn't understand it. You may remember that this April conference I spoke on pornography. No one told me they enjoyed that talk. Not one. In fact, there was nothing enjoyable in it even for me. I speak of these recent conversations to teach the principle that a message given by a general authority at a general conference, a message prepared under the influence of the Spirit to further the work of the Lord, is not given to be enjoyed. It is given to inspire, to edify, to challenge, or to correct. It is given to be heard under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord with the intended result that the listener learns from the talk and from the Spirit what he or she should do about it, end quote. I love that. That's perfect. It does remind me of a, of a single-panel cartoon that I saw of uh, 
a Protestant pastor outside of his church at the end of a of his sermon, and there was a mob coming to him with the with pitchforks and torches, and he leans over to one of his parishioners and says, "I don't know what I said, but it must have been right." <laughs> See if I can dig that up. All right, fair enough. Well, moving along then, in chapter two, we we uh, so he starts into uh, a couple of. Uh, tirades the wrong word. Uh, he, he's, he's calling out some problems uh, to his audience. And he starts in verse 12. So here's the first problem. This is ch- uh, chapter 2, verse 12. And now behold, my brethren, this is the word which I declare unto you, that many of you have begun to search for gold and for silver and for all manner of precious ores in the which this land, which is a land of promise unto you and to your seed, doth abound most plentifully. And the hand of providence hath smiled upon you most pleasingly, that you have obtained many riches. And because some of you have obtained more abundantly than that of your brethren, ye are lifted up in the pride of your hearts, and wear stiff necks and high heads because of the costliness of your apparel, and persecute your brethren because ye suppose that that ye are better than they. And now, my brethren, do ye suppose that God justifieth you in this, be- in this thing? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he condemneth you, and if ye persist in these things, his judgment must speedily come unto you. Oh, that he would show you, that he can pierce you, and with one glance of his eye he can smite you to the dust. Oh, that he would rid you from this iniquity and abomination. Oh, that you and oh, that you would listen unto the word of his commands and not let this pride of your hearts destroy your souls. Now, I want to point out a couple of things from from the uh, those last couple of verses in verse 15, where he talks about how, oh, how he would show you that he could pierce you um, and smite you with the smite you to the dust with a one glance of his eye. Let's remember, Jacob has seen the Lord. He knows. He's not speaking figuratively from scriptures that he may have read before, like Isaiah or whatever. He knows firsthand. Uh-huh. And he's anxious to tell his audience, look, you just don't know the power you're dealing with. Uh-huh. You don't know the God that you're upsetting and you're offending. Yeah. It's just—it's so clear. Uh, also, the just the, the the pleading here again is is uh, one of those uh, prophetic pleadings to recognize that pride does not define these people. They still have a choice. They can still repent. They can still turn themselves around. Uh, but if they if they choose to continue to to engage their pride, to foster their pride, it will destroy their souls. So what's the solution? He talks about in the next five verses, uh, this is uh, for, for 17. We have, so we have pride due to uh, accumulation of wealth. The solution, uh, starting in verse 17, think of your brethren like unto yourselves. And be familiar with all and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. Now, that's an interesting concept. Oftentimes, uh, there are those who have an economic philosophy that 
for one person to be wealthy, another person must be poor. In other words, there is a fixed, uh, 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 a fixed pie or a fixed total of wealth that can be earned. So if one has more than, quote-unquote, their share, another must have less. Uh, it's interesting, though, here that the demonstration or what Jacob is talking about is, well, no, actually, everyone can be wealthy. They can be rich like unto you. They can have what they need and perhaps even more so. Yeah, that brings up the question of what it means to be rich in what he's talking right? about here. Right, exactly. These next few verses are very important because they, they're they not denigrating to money or riches. Riches aren't the problem. Pride is the problem. Let me just mention one thing before you move on with those verses. And there's such an interesting phrase there, and be familiar with all. Mm. Why is that important? If you think of your brethren like unto yourselves and be familiar with all. Now, maybe there's a, a couple of different meanings to to familiar, but when I read that, I, I loved that notion that the reason I know that I could help somebody is because I'm familiar with them. You at least know who they are. Yeah, maybe it indicates kind of a family relationship. Uh, we should I think be it does. A family church, and we should know that so-and-so's in trouble, and, well, gosh, I maybe I don't have resources, but maybe I can be free with my time or my support or uh, whatever I can do. Think for a minute if we talked about be free with your, let's say, support uh, so that they can be rich in support like unto you, you know? Be mm-hmm. rich with your um, baked goods so they can be rich with baked goods like unto you you know we can share (laughs) talents and gifts and whatever it is but in order to know what needs to be shared we need to be familiar we need to to know what's happening with those around us and that's the opposite of pride it is it is the opposite of pride i i would add two thoughts to that one is the uh the the familiar uh, in the sense that the word familiar, if we think about it in the sense as being like a member of the family, this is a, is a call to remember that everyone around us, uh, whether inside of the church or outside of the church, uh, is our brother and sister. And we should treat them as if they are our brother and sister. Does this sound like President Nelson's recent call to ministering? Uh, it should. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, and I don't think there's any sense of saying, look, let's just take things from rich people and give them to poor people and we'll try to equalize this. We're talking about that family relationship. Let's Everybody reaches mm-hmm. out, and even those who, you know, who may not be rich in that one thing. I love that phrase, they may be rich like unto you, or in other words, the same mm-hmm. way that you are rich. Yep. So... You know, if no. you can even offer skills or whatever, let's let's equalize, uh, in other words, share with each other, mm-hmm. not just one direction either. So, absolutely. All right. So going on, in in so we're at verse eighteen. But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. Interesting. Where have we heard that phrase before? 
Now, Ooh, what's interesting about this, it is very Christ-like. And what's interesting about this is that this phrase would not be heard by the rest of the world for another five centuries. <laughs> this is for uh, this is uh, certainly a line very similar to uh, Matthew uh, six thirty-three from the Sermon on the Mount, and that's probably not coincidental. Again, this is a situation where. Uh, Jacob has seen the Lord, has had many revelations, and this was probably something that he was taught through those. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches, if ye seek them. Wait, what was that? So, if you obtain your hope in Christ, you'll be rich? If you seek money, you'll get it? How exciting! But why? Why does it work that way? Let's finish the verse. And ye will seek them, this is the riches, you will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, and to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. I want you to consider something. There's a couple of times in scriptures We'll and we'll talk about it. There's at least one or two uh, in the Book of Mormon that we'll we'll get a chance to talk about. There's a couple of times in the scriptures where the Lord essentially says to His servant, "You can ask for anything you want, and I'll grant it to you." You know, making it sound like He's got a genie in a bottle, but no limit on wishes. Oh my gosh, this is wonderful! But why was the promise given? It's because the servant had aligned its himself, him or herself, so tightly with the thought process of the Lord, with the will of the Lord, that the Lord knows that this person will not ask for anything that he shouldn't, that he or she shouldn't. He will, he, he, whatever he will ask for will be in line with the will of the Lord. And it's a similar thing here. You want riches? I'll give you riches if... You've already aligned with me that you're going to use them to help your brothers and sisters, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry and liberate the captive. If you're going to do this, and if I know that you're going to do this, I'll give you riches. These are tools that you're going to further my work with. It, it becomes then a stewardship of resources rather it than, is. than your stuff. And I think you'll find, uh, I find... Uh, that uh, it's actually a, a, a surprisingly common understanding uh, for those in the United States who have a, a fair deal of wealth uh, to look at it that way. Well, this isn't really mine. This is a stewardship, uh, especially those with a, a more of a, a Christian religion, religious background. And I think that's wonderful because I, I absolutely believe that's true. All right, now moving on. Verse 20. And now, my brethren, I have spoken unto you concerning pride. And those of you which have afflicted your neighbor and persecuted him because you were proud in your hearts of the things which God hath given you, what say ye of it? Do ye not suppose that such things are abominable unto him who created all flesh? And the one being is as precious in his sight as the other, and all flesh is of the dust. And for the selfsame end hath he created them, that they should keep his commandments and glorify him forever. Uh, that's a bold slam to his audience. It really is. Uh, he's 
no holds barred here. Uh, one last thought, you know, we talked a little bit uh, uh, about wealth and the, the accumulation of wealth. Uh, similarly, uh, there's a, a quote uh, that I pulled out of the Go- Old Gospel Doctrine Manual from President Spencer W. Kimball. This is um, from the Miracle of Forgiveness. He says, quote, The possession of riches does not necessarily constitute sin, but sin may arise in the acquisition and use of wealth. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Book of Mormon history eloquently reveals the corrosive effect of the passion for wealth. Had the people used their wealth for good purposes, they could have enjoyed a continuing prosperity. But they seemed unable for a sustained period to be simultaneously wealthy and righteous. End quote. There's one other quote about the concept of the pursuit of success or happiness. This is from President Boyd K. Packer from uh, October 1980 General Conference. Quote, We want our children and their children to know that the choice of life is not between fame and obscurity, nor is the choice between wealth and poverty. The choice is between good and evil. And that is a very different matter indeed. When we finally understand this lesson, thereafter our happiness will not be determined by material things. We may be happy without them or successful in spite of them. Wealth and prominence do not always come from having earned them. Our worth is not measured by renown or by what we own. Our lives are made up of thousands of everyday choices. Over the years, these little choices will be bundled together and show clearly what we value. The crucial test of life, I repeat, does not center in the choice between fame and obscurity, nor between wealth and poverty. The greatest decision of life is between good and evil, end quote. Wonderful perspective there from... It is. Well, that was hard to get through some of that tough stuff that Jacob was talking about, but clear sailing from here on out. That's right. We got done with the hard stuff, and and, and now we're... Wait. Wait. Verse 22. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, Oh, there's something else. There's something else, and it sounds like it's going to even be worse. Listen to this. Chapter, verse 22. And now I make an end of speaking unto you concerning this pride. Yay, we're done. (laughs) And were it not that I must speak unto you concerning a grosser crime, uh, my heart would rejoice exceedingly because of you. So his heart's not rejoicing exceedingly. No. Something, Something worse. Yeah. But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to wax in iniquity. They understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon, his son. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Well, and this was something that he pointed out back in chapter 1, verse 15, that this Ooh. was going to be So we kind of, we did kind of know that this would be coming up, yeah. Afraid so. One of the things that I found interesting is that this is the first time we really get a sense 
you know, Jeremiah certainly has some complaints against Israel, but in the Book of Mormon, all we hear is that Jerusalem was being very wicked, and Jacob is the first one to really give us some information about what was some of the wickedness that they were being, uh, they were going to be destroyed for. And in 25, he says that thus saith the Lord, I have led this people, speaking of Lehi's family and, and Ishmael, forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm that I might raise up a righteous branch. So from, if he's saying he's leading them out to raise up a righteous branch, well, what does he want them to escape? And in 31 and 32, he touches on that, I have seen the sorrow and heard the mourning of the daughters of my people in the land of Jerusalem, yea, and in all the lands of my people because of the wickedness and abominations of their husbands. I will not suffer, saith the Lord of hosts, their cries of the fair daughters of this people, which I've led out. So in other words, the uh, sexual sin, the trying to do marriage the way they wanted to do marriage, we're not going to do that here. I led you out of Jerusalem to escape that, and um, we're going to put an end to it. And that's spelled out very clearly, certainly, in uh, verses 27 to 30. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord, for there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Wherefore this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. Now, Jay. Yes, John? I learned that for almost 60 years, shortly after the beginning of the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that the members of some of the members of the church and many of the leaders practiced plural marriage. What? It's true. And nobody knows. Well, wait. Oh, wait, everybody uh, knows I, that. I think, I think that means everybody knows that. Everybody knows I, that. I, I think they do. And, you know, I think the sad thing is that there are plenty of people even today who that's all they know about the church, which given all that the church has done from the beginning and continues to do to bring people to Jesus Christ, that's just sad. Well, it is. But it's a reality. And there is not, this is a subject that really we would rather, I think would be best uh, that we spend a lot of time with maybe next year when we're covering church history. Yeah, but John, what if I wanted to learn more about the topic right now? Well, there are several resources for that, and we'd like to put those up. There's certainly, as an added point of interest in this story specifically for the Book of Mormon and Jacob, there's a, a no-why at Book of Mormon Central, no-why number 64, in which there's a discussion of the element of plural marriage or having multiple wives being a status symbol of the wealthy. This is something that was that is very common in ancient cultures and even in a few modern cultures, uh, the ability to say, hey, you know, not only can I provide and protect for one woman, I can provide for two or three or ten or whatever. Uh, you know, as a, as that's a, a really just good a manifestation parallel. of wealth, John. That's that that really helps to unify the topics here too. 
That's true. Know, this, and and there's is, no coincidence then yeah, from, that's great. from his topic. The whole problem here, it's not wealth. It's not the number of wives. It's the pride. Yeah. That's the, you, you know, want, that's the linking yeah. factor. You're just thinking Absolutely. of yourself and you want God's will above your will. The other one. I said wrong. I'm going to leave that in there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, you want your will yes. like, over, over God's will. That's so what I meant to, be to say. Because the other way would be a good thing. That would be. Please disregard All right. that. So, but as far as if you want to learn more about the church's background with plural marriage, there are some wonderful resources. The Gospel Topics Essays, great resource. Uh, we had a recent publishing of uh, The Saints, Volume 2. I'm not completely through it yet, but I've really been enjoying it so far. That covers uh, a lot of the, the plural marriage years. And there's an excellent resource. There's a recent scholar, uh, Brian C. Hales, who did a, just a marvelous amount of research on what we know and what we don't know about plural marriage in the history of the church. He and his wife, Laura, put together a summary book called Joseph Smith's Polygamy Toward a Better Understanding. Big fan of that book. If you have questions at all about polygamy, strongly recommend it. That's, there's also a companion website, josephsmithspolygamy.org, that has uh, several articles and, and other information from the book. Great stuff. Take a look at these resources if you'd like, but also one quote that I wanted to leave you with. This is from Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Not to be confused, this is the 1976 uh, compilation from Joseph Fielding Smith. This is not the teachings of the presidents of the church that were done in the early 2000s. Where Joseph Smith says, quote, I have constantly said, no man shall have but one wife at a time unless the Lord directs otherwise. End quote. Good. That's a good uh, cap on top of the topic. So at the end of the chapter, Jacob points out something that must have been just as biting as anything that he said to, to the wicked. Behold, ye have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. Ye have broke, yeah, you've broken the hearts of your tender wives, lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. And the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. This is the beginning of a continued slam uh, demonstrating that as much as they want to, uh, apparently, uh, some want to really dislike the Lamanites, uh, he's going to use them as an example of saying, look, you think they're bad. Uh, you should maybe examine yourselves. Jacob seems to have a very clear understanding that just your association as a people is not your saving grace, you know, just yeah. to say, well, I'm of the house of Israel, or I'm a Nephite as opposed to a Lamanite, or I'm even a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yep. Doesn't matter. No. What are you doing with that? Exactly. So Jacob begins our next chapter by talking about how he's now speaking to the pure in heart. This is a great break from the topics he's just talked about. In verse 1, Behold, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. Look unto God with firmness of mind and pray unto him with exceeding faith. Why? He will console you in your afflictions. What an interesting phrase. We don't hmm. here have a promise that the afflictions will be taken away from you. But if you're suffering... 
And if you're in a challenge, and remember that oftentimes we may pray for God to change our circumstances, but remember that he's trying to change us. So when you're in those hardships, look unto God with firmness of mind and pray. Pray unto him with exceeding faith and he will console you. He will plead your cause and send down justice. Now, that idea of the firmness of mind is brought up again at the end of verse 2, if your minds are firm forever. The firmness of mind, if you'd like a what that looks like practically, check out Alma 5727. And you've got that phrase being used to describe the 2,000 stripling warriors. Check out the things that describe them. And you'll see what that means to be firm in your mind. Your minds are firm in the faith. Verse 3, woe. There's two woes. Hmm. That's not good. Woe, woe unto you that are not pure in heart. And then he begins this uh, to talk about the Lamanites. For except ye repent, the land is cursed for your sakes. And the Lamanites, which are not filthy like unto you, Nevertheless, they are cursed even with a sore cursing, shall scourge you. Hmm. So the Lamanites get talked about here going forward. And it's fascinating that he says things like, they are not filthy like unto you. Because he'll go on to say that we'll talk about this imagery of the cursing which has come upon their skins and so forth. And that you think in verse 5, it says that you think that they are filthy. You hate them because of their filthiness. But guess what? Back to verse 3. They're not filthy. Like you are filthy. Like you. Those of you who are not pure in heart. It's a biting slam. There in in, uh, verse 5, Behold the Lamanites, your brethren, whom ye hate because of their filthiness, and the cursing which hath come upon their skins, are more righteous than you. For they have not forgotten the commandment of the Lord, which was given unto our father, that they should have, save it were one wife, and concubines they should have none, and there should not be whoredoms committed among them. And now this commandment they observe to keep. Wherefore, because of this observance and keeping this commandment, the Lord God will not destroy them, but be merciful unto them. And one day they shall become a blessed people. Okay, now remember, these are the enemy, as it were. You know, these were the lesser people. Behold, their husbands love their wives. Slam. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And their wives love their husbands. And their husbands and their wives love their children, and their unbelief and their hatred towards you is because of the iniquity of your of their fathers. Wherefore, how much better are you than they in the sight of your great creator? Oh, my brethren, I fear that unless ye shall repent of your sins, that their skins will be whiter than yours. Now, we talked about... Uh, the notion of black and white skin in earlier episodes. Yeah, and Jacob talks about it a fair bit in his conversation. Again, it might be helpful to think of it in terms of their outward countenance is darker or lighter. Exactly. That's what skin seems to mean if we look at a broader use of the Scripture in the Old Testament and throughout the Book of Mormon. But again, you can refer back to uh, the episode for uh, uh, 2 Nephi chapter 5. Plus, there's there's a video that we'll link that at the end. Uh, If you're interested in exploring it more. 
All right. So ye shall repent of your sins, that their skins will be whiter than yours. So the Lamanite skins will be the, the Lamanites will be more pure than you are uh, when ye shall be brought with them before the throne of God. Well, and who has who has the whitest countenance in all of scriptures? When we get into right. third Nephi, we're going to see Christ has the whitest countenance. This notion. Well, and that's an interesting point, too, because he talks about it when ye shall be brought with them before the throne of God. Yeah. That would mean that Christ is there, and certainly all of us are going to look dull compared to Christ. Right. But how dull? How dull is exactly how much light do we have in us? And uh, mm. even those, you know, going back to verse five, even those who have a dark countenance who have a loss of light, he explains why in verse 7. Uh, they've been taught this. You've been taught mm-hmm. correct principles. What excuse do you have for the darkness of your countenance? None. You know, they have an excuse, and they will be lifted up and blessed. But yeah. watch yourself. In verse 9, Wherefore a commandment I give unto you, which is the word of God, that ye revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins. Neither shall ye revile against them because of their filthiness. But ye shall remember your own filthiness, and remember that their filthiness came because of their fathers. Again, that term filthiness is, you know, we have a, there's a phrase that gets used for both Nephites and Lamanites when they've turned against God dark, loathsome, and filthy. Mm-hmm. And so again, we have this notion of filthiness is an outward manifestation. And they're saying, look, this filthiness came because of their fathers. What's your excuse? You know, the we talked a little bit about this already. Uh, in verse 10, you have a, a return to the notion of ye have, in talking about the wives and children, ye have grieved their hearts because of the example that ye have set before them. Mm. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, this is from April 2003 General Conference, talks a little bit about that in more modern context. Quote, I think some parents may not understand that even when they feel secure in their own minds regarding matters of personal testimony, they can never make that faith too difficult for their children to detect. They can be reasonably active, meeting going Latter-day Saints, but if we do not live lives of gospel integrity and convey to our children powerful, heartfelt convictions regarding the truthfulness of the restoration and the divine guidance of the church from the first vision to this very hour, then those children may, to our regret, but not surprise, turn out not to be visibly active, meeting going Latter-day Saints, or sometimes anything close to it. Not long ago, Sister Holland and I met a fine young man who came in contact with us after he had been roaming around through the occult and sorting through a variety of Eastern religions, all in an attempt to find religious faith. His father, he admitted, believed in nothing whatsoever. But his grandfather, he said, was actually a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But he didn't do much with it, the young man said. He was always pretty cynical about the church. From a grandfather who is cynical, to a son who is agnostic, to a grandson who is now looking desperately for what God had already once given his family. To lead a child or anyone else, even inadvertently away from faithfulness, 
away from loyalty and bedrock belief simply because we want to be clever or independent is license no parent nor any other person has ever been given. Live the gospel as conspicuously as you can. Keep the covenants your children know you have made. Give priesthood blessings and bear your testimony. Don't just assume your children will somehow get the drift of your beliefs on their own. End quote. I love him. So important. So important to remember as our examples, uh, what our examples do for other people and, and, and most, specific, most specifically our children. You know, in verse 11, O oh, my brethren, hearken unto my words. Arouse the faculties of your souls. Shake yourselves that ye may awake from the slumber of death. Those of you who've come walked through uh, Isaiah with us you know, over the last couple of weeks, uh, that's very Isaiah-ish. Uh, mm-hmm. The slumber of death and loose yourselves from the pains of hell that ye may not become angels of the devil to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's how Nephi, that's how Jacob wraps it up. And he goes, uh, that, that's his, his speech at the temple to his people. He says, I, you know, I, I said a lot more. He gives us a summary in 12 of, uh, of some things. But then in 13, he says, look, I, I, I don't have, this is, it's hard to write on these plates. Our people are becoming very numerous. I can't write all of the things that are happening. They're written on the large plates by somebody else. And uh, these plates, the plates of Jacob, he mentions in verse 14, they were made by the hand of Nephi. And he goes on to, to talk for the next uh, few verses in the next chapter about writing on the plates. Uh, verse 1, he says, it's, I, I can write but little because of the difficulty of engraving our words upon plates. I don't blame him. That must be very, very hard. It would seem and hard. I'm so grateful for what he did. Well, and I wonder, you know, we talked about in earlier episodes that, that Nephi seemed to have some disposition towards met- metallurgy. Yeah. It's possible that Jacob didn't, that these were made for Jacob but by Nephi. Yep. Yep. And, you know, Jacob perhaps didn't know how to make other plates. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's something that was that was easily passed on because uh, by the time we get to the end of the small plates with Amalekai, he says, look, the plates are full. He doesn't say, well, yeah. I need to go make some more plates. Right. Uh, what right. we have is is filled up. That's a good point. So in chapter 4, let's start with verse 3. Now, in this thing we do rejoice, and we labor diligently to engraven these words upon plates, hoping that our beloved brethren and our children will receive them with thankful hearts and look upon them, that they may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt concerning their first parents. For for this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. Behold, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name, and also we worship the Father in his name. And for this intent we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him, and for this cause it is sanctified unto us for righteousness, even as it was accounted unto Abraham in the wilderness to be obedient unto the commandments of God in offering up his son Isaac, which is a similitude of God and his only begotten son. 
Wherefore, we search the prophets, and we have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. Now, in just those few verses, there is a ton of stuff. And I'm not going to cover it all, but think about things that Jacob is revealing here that without the Book of Mormon, we wouldn't know. Not least of which is in verse 5 about the purpose of the law of Moses. Absolutely. Uh, the purpose of the law of Moses, the fact that all the holy prophets had uh, knew of Christ and had a hope of his glory, uh, the fact that we should not look that, that we uh, may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt concerning their first parents. Who are they talking about? Are they talking about Adam and Eve? Are they talking about Lehi and Sariah? I would suggest probably both. I expect. But, you know, the idea of this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. The plan of salvation, this was thought out. This was, you know, not some sort of divine accident. This was a good thing. Yeah, and we've all been looking this direction. Yeah, yeah, and it's so powerful. You you also get, this is his summary of, hey, this is why we've, even though these plates have been hard to write on, this is why we're doing it. Yeah, This is why it's so important. Well, I appreciate the that statement that we keep the law of Moses for, that it points our souls to Christ, because when we're talking about an example that we may give to our kids, why do we keep the covenants that we've made? Do our kids get the impression that it's a burden? Do they get the impression that we're not very enthusiastic about it? Or do they see in how we serve and what we do in the gospel that we celebrate that it is pointing our souls to Christ? When we do our family scripture reading, is it agony or do they feel that we're pointing our souls to Christ, when we partake of the sacrament, when we serve in callings, even missions or whatever, do they see why we're doing it? Do they see that, that joy? And I, I think that's a, that feels like that's a great application to me. Mm-hmm. There's another great phrase I like in verse six, this idea of becoming unshaken when you read that. In the next two lessons, we're going to get that concept. In the next show, we'll talk about it. And then in Enos as well, he mentions it. But I really like this one because it's very, it's harder to relate to some of Jacob's experiences, which are a little more extreme. But in verse six, here's what they did so that their faith became unshaken. They searched the prophets. What a great question to ask your family or class. What does that mean? to search the prophets. When we listen to general conference, are we searching the prophets or are we just listening? And then like we talked about earlier, Hey, that was a nice talk. I was entertained. Yeah. Right. And then, so that's the first step. We search the prophets living or those that have written. And we have many revelations. Well, all right. Maybe that sounds big, but it shouldn't. We can have many revelations. The scriptures open the door to the receipt of revelation. So we search the prophets. That opens the door to receive revelation. 
and the spirit of prophecy. Well, okay, maybe we didn't have the spirit of prophecy, but it would be wonderful to use the definition in Revelation 19.10 that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. We search the prophets, that opens the door to many revelations, and then we have a testimony of Jesus Christ. And having all these witnesses, well, what all these witnesses? The prophets, our revelations, the testimony of Jesus Christ, these are all witnesses. And then we obtain a hope and our faith becometh unshaken. So it's a great little pattern right there for us to look at. And on the flip side, if we begin to feel our faith being shaken, to look at that list and say, which of these things are we not doing? In verse 8, Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him. And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. For behold, by the power of his word, man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Wherefore, if God, being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created, oh, then, why not able to command the earth, or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. Elder Oaks had connected this idea at one point, and I don't have the quote in front of me. I'll see if I can find it, where he said that why should we expect that we would understand how the Lord is working? Uh, And he referenced it back to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, when he says that uh, our ways are not God's ways, neither are are our thoughts his thoughts, or are his thoughts our thoughts? He's got a, a much bigger picture in his purposes. So we should expect that not everything makes sense the way he's doing it. And likely when it doesn't make sense, it's because we're looking at it with the wrong lens. Just like with Nephi, you know, going back and forth to, why didn't he just bring everything with him? Why didn't he just go get Ishmael and they just made it in one trip? Well, maybe we missed the point of what he was trying to do in helping Mm -hmm. them to become. Maybe the trip was secondary to what he was trying to accomplish. It it just helps to change our lens, but also, I think, to understand that we should not counsel the Lord. We should seek counsel. There's a quote from President Marion G. Romney. I pulled this out of the Institute Manual. This is from uh, an Enzyme article called Seek Not to Counsel the Lord. It's from August 1985. Quote, Now, I do not think that many members of the church consciously urge the persuasions of men or their own counsel instead of heeding the Lord's. However, when we do not keep ourselves advised as to what the counsel of the Lord is, we are prone to substitute our own counsel for his. As a matter of fact, there is nothing else we can do but follow our own counsel when we do not know the Lord's instructions, end quote. So, again, here is an important key. 
the first part of Jacob's phrase. You seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hands. Well, how can we take counsel unless we figure out what his counsel is in the first place? There still needs to be that action on our part. It's so important. And it's, it's, it's hilarious sometimes when we find ourselves counseling the Lord. And I'm not talking about people who are perhaps antichrist or who have fallen away from the gospel and are militant against the church. This is not that type of thing. I'm talking about each one of us. There is a sad story, you know, just sad in the sense that it's stupid. I need to share. My siblings and I recently had taken a, uh, a sibling's trip to uh, Mexico, to uh, the Cancun area, and we spent some time together there. This was uh, largely the idea of my youngest brother, Adam, uh, who had served his mission in Mexico and, and knew Spanish very well, and, and uh, you know he was our guide for the trip. I'd certainly never been to Mexico, and it was a, a new thing for me. Now, I want to preface this by saying that historically, I have had terrible time learning foreign languages. And one could argue that I don't really know English that well. <laughs> so, you know, language, not my strong suit. And yet, I remember early on in the trip having a conversation with Adam in which there was a word, and I don't even remember the word, that I had heard our cab driver, our native cab driver, pronounce. And I thought I heard him. And so Adam pronounced this word, and I corrected him because I thought <laughs> I heard this cab driver say it differently. And as stupid as that sounds to you, it's infinitely more stupid when you think to, to take it upon yourself to say, yeah, I know, I know, Lord, you're telling me to do this, but, but really it's like this. <laughs> Don't you mean this, Lord? Is that, yeah. isn't that what you were trying yeah, to say? I, I, I think what you were trying to say, yeah. <laughs> and it's just, who the heck do we think we are? And yeah. my public apologies to my brother Adam. Uh, <laughs> I was well out of my area of expertise and had no right to question his counsel either. It's just a human nature thing that we do. And it's sad and it's stupid and we need to to make sure that we're not doing that, particularly with the Lord, that we are to take counsel from his hands and learn his counsel. Well, and verse 11 talks about uh, that phrase again. We've, we've seen this multiple times, uh, to be reconciled unto God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. It means to be put in a right state with God. It's fascinating, though, to me that only Jacob and Nephi use that phrase to be reconciled to God or to be reconciled to Christ. But I really love it because I, it means whatever we need to do to be put in a right state. And we usually know what that is in the same way that we would try to be reconciled to a person. That's the way Christ uses it in 3 Nephi, to be reconciled to your brother. And maybe, John, you, this is your way to be reconciled to your brother. <laughs> you know, but to be put in a right state. And, and we Again, usually we know what that is. So, yeah, I really love that description. And even if you don't think that you do, think of the concept of reconciliation and atonement or at one as it were. Mm -hmm. This is your opportunity to surrender your will to the Father's, to align your will with the Lord's. 
This is your point of at-one-ment. This is your point of repentance, reconciliation. You are now aligned with the will of the Father. And think what that gives you access to, uh, how it opens up your mind to be able to see things uh, afar off, to be able to understand, to be comforted, to be connected with the God of the universe. That That's worth submitting your will to. Absolutely. John, did you want to read 14? I did. And okay. there is something that is really interesting. We talked a little bit earlier in Jacob that we're, we were getting more insight into what the problem was with the Jews in Jerusalem at the time that they departed. Here is another insight, verse 14. But behold, the, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things which they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came from looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them, and delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand, because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it, that they may stumble. Now, first of all, that is a powerful image. And as a parent, I can see a loving parent telling their toddler, no, you don't want to put your hand up on that stove burner. It will hurt you. It will cause you a great deal of pain. But then finally saying, you know what? This is the only way you're going to learn. Go ahead, put your hand up there. You know, this is one of those uh, examples where the Lord has said, you know, look, you need to focus on the words of plainness and living the, the simpleness of my gospel. And you see the, the, the Jews looking beyond that and our, our loving father finally saying, you know, you know what? Fine. Here you go. Deal with this. And knowing that it will cause them to stumble, but that's the only way that they'll, they'll understand uh, what the father is trying to tell them. There's a quote uh, to that effect uh, that I pulled out of the Institute Manual. And this is Elder Dean L. Larson. This is from uh, October 1987 General Conference. He's describing that the Israelites in ancient times got themselves into great difficulty because, quote, they placed themselves in serious jeopardy in spiritual things because they were unwilling to accept simple, basic principles of truth. They entertained and intrigued themselves with things they could not understand. They were apparently afflicted with a pseudo-sophistication and a snobbishness that gave them a false sense of superiority over those who came among them with the Lord's words of plainness, or who wanted to correct them in their pronunciation of Spanish. <laughs> they went beyond the mark of wisdom and prudence and obviously failed to stay within the circle of fundamental gospel truths which provide a basis for faith. They must have reveled in speculative and theoretical matters that obscured for them the fundamental spiritual truths, and they became infatuated by these things that they could not understand. Their comprehension of and faith in the redeeming role of a true Messiah was lost, and the purpose of life became confused. A study of Israel's history will confirm Jacob's allegations, end quote. It most certainly will. Well, and can we take that message and 
keep it as a, a warning to ourselves. Let's not fall into that trap. Uh, let's let's do what we can to align our will with God, not seek to counsel him. Don't let our pride get in the way of us connecting with the Lord the way that he wants us to. Absolutely. Let's do it. I like this. And that's all the time that we have for this show. We appreciate you uh, watching and listening. We're so grateful for all of your uh, comments and encouragement, and we'll continue to do the best we can. Make sure you're reading the scriptures. Once again, 25 minutes, 27 seconds, you can do that. I can can do it. You can listen to it, read it, whatever. Yep. And we'll look forward to talking to you uh, in our next episode. Sounds great. See you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.